Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. Alrighty. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. It's good to be with you all for the second week of the series called Discovering the Covenant of Marriage. And Father Paul started us off last week uh, with a very, very fired up talk, talking a lot about this idea of how we often enter into relationships with this idea of infatuation, and we are so focused on looks and focused on what we can get out of relationships. But the goal of marriage is not to necessarily just be about our happiness, but the goal of marriage is for us to be sanctified, to be made holy, to become better people through the covenant of marriage. And my hope for us today is I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on marriage, but I will tell you uh, just some things that I've learned in the last uh, almost nine years of marriage, um, things that I think that are really powerful, that are really encouraging, and I think if we together as a community can be uh, a community that prays for marriages and understands the sanctity of marriage, then it's something that's really powerful. Now, maybe some of the college folks that are in here, you're thinking to yourself, oh, another talk about marriage, four weeks about marriage. I ain't even there yet. I'm still trying to figure out how to pass my exam this week. What am I doing here attending this talk? Well, I'll tell you, if you understand the proper understanding of what marriage is supposed to be, then even in the choices that you make about who you marry or who, what type of relationships you're in, it really shapes that type of way that you go about navigating relationships. So this is not just for people that are married. This is for those also who are you know, dating or eager to get married, for you to understand what God's expectations of marriage is. So I wanted to share quickly a quote from St. John Chrysostom that he says, when a husband and wife are united in marriage, they no longer seem like something earthly, but rather like the image of God himself. Rather than something earthly, they look like the image of God himself. Why? How is that possible? How does that even make sense? I'll take you, give you another quote by Tertullian. He says, marriage is arranged by the church, so we do all the preparation, confirmed by the Holy Eucharist, by the way, in the early church, the sacrament of marriage was only celebrated during liturgy. It was, you would get married and you would also partake of the Eucharist. And you see some people still do that today. So confirmed in the, by the Holy Eucharist, sealed by the blessing, inscribed in heaven by the angels, and written down in the Lamb's book of life. And even St. Paul, when he writes about marriage, he writes this quote. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So, marriage is a big deal to God. Marriage is a big deal to God because marriage is an icon of Him. It's an icon of His relationship with us. It's an icon of how we were messy, we fall short, we time and time again make mistakes, but God comes, visits us, restores us, heals us, accepts us with our shortcomings, and sees the potential in every single one of us to be who he desires us to be. Now, oftentimes, we get into relationships thinking, what am I going to get out of this relationship? What is this person going to do for me? What is this, how is this person going to better my life? But I'll tell you, the whole intention of marriage 
The whole goal of God's mind in giving us this image, this mystery of marriage, is for him to show us and for us to experience his love towards us and how we ought to be like him in everything that we do. St. Paul further, in Philippians chapter 2, when he talks even about the idea of being a Christian, he zooms out on, on the, the, the whole, I would say, like the mission statement or the ethos of what it means to be a Christian. And St. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 talks about having the mind of Christ. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. What is the model? If marriage is supposed to be an image of Christ and his church, what is St. Paul saying here? He's saying, if you want to really be in marriage, you want to be in a healthy relationship, you want to embody what God's plan for marriage is, let the mind of Christ be in you. Whether that be before marriage, even in the, in, in the current state that you're in right now, the mind of Christ in every single one of us needs to be what? Not that I'm trying to get something, but what can I do? For the other? What can I do to serve the world around me? And if I don't have this idea of sacrifice and giving to someone before marriage, there's 0% chance I'm going to be able to bring it in marriage. In relationships, there are people that are takers and there are people that are givers, right? And if you are a taker, it's going to be very difficult for you to go into a marriage and all of a sudden become a giver. So he's saying, before you even get into marriage, I want you to understand the mystery of marriage and what marriage is. Marriage is about being the image of God in Christ in his relationship to the church. What is the church? Does the church accept Christ very easily? Do we, every single one of us, if we are the church, all of us, and we know what Christ has done for, for us, do, are we perfect? Absolutely not. Do we fall short? Absolutely. Do we have weaknesses? 1,000%. Do we time and time again make mistakes? Of course. But does he still love us? and hope for us, and heal us despite all that? Absolutely, that's the message of the gospel, is that the message today, while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, the Christ came to save and seek that which was lost. That was the message of the gospel today in the liturgy. So the whole mission of Christ is to care for those who are unlovable. I'll just change the word. His mission is to really heal those around him, and we ought to embody that too. I want to share a quote from a great book called The Meaning of Marriage from a pastor named Tim Kelly. Tim Keller, sorry. He says, the reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it is a a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we've ever dared to believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared to hope. What is this saying? It's saying that the mystery of marriage is literally the image of the gospel. It's like a mirror of the gospel. Is that we fall short and God still loves us. We fall short and God still cares for us. We're flawed and he still sees our potential. So that's what makes it difficult. It's difficult because it's a reflection of, and it gives us an opportunity to be able to live out the call of the gospel. And I think for many of us, if you don't know the gospel before you get into marriage, it's going to be hard to live the gospel in marriage. If you don't know the message of Christ for yourself personally and what that means, it's going to be very difficult to embody him 
in marriage, when you're in the thick of it, when, high, when bad times come, come out, and when your, your significant other really doesn't look like the best version of themselves or act like the best version of themselves. A priest by the name of Father Mark Dunway says, the physical difficulties and the emotional confrontations of marriage and family life are meant to be God's tools for working out our salvation if we let him use them in our daily life. This is what Father Paul spoke about last week. This is the exact thing that he said. The difficulties and the troubles and the hardships. Can you only, can you be the best version of yourself if you're not tested, not put through the ringer? Like an athlete, right? When an athlete plays a sport, the only way a person can play a sport and be really good at it is if he's constantly challenged in that sport to compete at a higher level, right? In marriage, you are put in the, like almost like the fiery furnace where all of a sudden, your shortcomings, your weaknesses, every difficulty starts to manifest. And the others as well. And if you can't love the person through that, if you can't see who the person's potential is through that, it's going to be difficult to stay married. This is the only kind of relationship that will really transform us. It's the only kind of relationship that will really transform us. And the reason why it's the only kind of relationship that will really transform us is because if done in, with the right mindset, there's no exit. There's no exit. So if I'm forced to work through this, if I'm forced to make this work, what's going to naturally happen? Even when it's the worst, it's going to make me better. It's going to push me to reach newer heights. Some people today will say, well, why get married then? Actually, stats are saying that people are getting married less and less in the modern context. Right? People are saying, you know what? I'll just live with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'll, you know, get all the benefits of marriage. But it's better for me not to get married because if I don't get married, it's easy to walk away. So I don't want this covenant. I don't want this binding relationship. I don't want this sort of uh, thing that makes it very difficult for me to walk away. C.S. Lewis says something really beautiful in this book called The Four Loves. He says, love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. So if you don't want to hurt yourself, if you don't want your heart to be broken, give it to no one, right? Just live solo, don't give it to anyone. But look what he says. Not even to an animal. You know, some people fall in love with their dogs, but what happens if their dog, after a certain period of time, passes away? Your heart is broken as well. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a safe, in a casket, or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that closet, safe, dark, motionless, air, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. What is that quote saying? It's an intense quote. It's basically saying you could be safe. You could be safe and never love anyone. You could be safe and never be in a relationship. It's the easiest way. But what happens? You become cold. You never become challenged. You become weak. You become sort of this person who doesn't have anything to love. Let me give you a, a, a better image of that. Is when you think about love, love by definition has to be what? It has to be inclusive. Love, by definition, has to be inclusive. So it has to include others in it. 
So some people will say, well, Abuna, I'll get married, but I don't want to have kids. Like, you know, I don't want to have kids. Kids are, you know, once you bring kids in the equation, the whole thing gets sort of messy. But if love is love, then it has to include others in it. If love is exclusive, if love doesn't welcome others into it, then it can't be love at all because it's selfish. It's all about me. And I think oftentimes when we think about love in the modern context, again, it's selfish. It's all about me. It's all about what I can get out of it. The moral of the story is, ladies and gentlemen, is marriage is hard. And I put in big letters because I think it's really something that all of us need to sort of not just jump into very willy-nilly. I think a lot of us, like Abuna Paul was saying, as we get into this infatuation phase, we just think, oh, he's so cute. Oh, she's so blah, blah, blah. We sort of get caught up in the physical attraction and we haven't prepared ourselves emotionally and spiritually in order to be able to navigate the marathon that marriage is. The marathon that marriage is and what it requires of every single one of us. But people will say, well, love shouldn't be this hard. It should come naturally. It should come in a way that when I see that person, I know that that is my person. Like butterflies go on in my stomach and all of a sudden sparks fly. And all of a sudden, like we just, you know, he completes my sentences. She makes me really good bacon, egg, and cheeses in the morning. Like it should just be easy. Like why is it so complicated? Why are relationships so difficult? Would somebody who plays professional baseball say, it shouldn't be so hard to hit a fastball? Would somebody be, be who plays professional basketball? You know, Steph Curry shoots it from the logo, from half court. Like, would, would people look at that and say, that's just so easy. It should be so easy for me. You go, if I go and I try to shoot a three-pointer, the likelihood of me hitting that three-pointer is maybe 4%. For these professional basketball players, it's like 70%, some of the really good ones. High likelihood. Hard doesn't mean bad. Hard doesn't mean bad. In anything in life, is there anything that comes that is so great that isn't difficult? My wife stumped me yesterday. She said, take out. <laughs> I asked her, I said, Heba, is there anything in life that's hard that isn't great? She said, take out. I said, well, it's not great because it makes you fat. She's like, I stumped you, though. I stumped you. But everything that's hard in life is actually difficult. You think about it. To be, excel in your career, you have to work hard. And it's difficult. And you have to push yourself to new limits. You want to grow in your spiritual life. It's hard. You got to put in time. You got to put in hours. You got to grow. You got to learn. Friendships. Forget marital relationships. Let's talk about friendships. Friendships are hard. It requires selflessness. It requires giving of yourself to the other person. It requires you to put the interests of the other before yourself. Becoming better at a sport is hard. Rome wasn't built overnight. You don't just become Steph Curry by all of a sudden getting on a court and just shooting. You have to put time and effort. When you think about, you, ever, you guys ever heard of the Mamba mentality, Kobe Bryant? Kobe Bryant, the Mamba mentality. You know what he used to do? The amount of hours that he would spend to become Kobe Bryant? Thousands and thousands of hours. People only see what it looks like when he shows up to the court and plays, but nobody knows what's happening behind the scenes to cre that created the great player in Kobe Bryant. Anything that is great is hard. And we have this somehow this really false understanding that all of a sudden marriage ought to be easy. Relationships ought to be easy. But why is that not applied to everything else in life? And then all of a sudden we, in marriage, when the going gets hard, we're like, ah, actually, this is just more than I bargained for. Because 
I think, <laughs> I think the American narrative of marriage is that it's all about me. It's all about what I get out of it. It's all about what satisfies me because society has made us so egocentric. Society has made us oh so self-centered. You think about it. You want a package. You literally go. Yesterday I ordered a baby cam because my kids broke theirs, and it came in two hours. I was flat, flat. I didn't pay any extra for it. It came in two hours from Amazon. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is insane. You want great food. You can go order a Michelin-starred restaurant from DoorDash. Like, you don't even have to go to the restaurant anymore. Everything is at the tip of your hands and makes life so easy. So all of a sudden, I've gotten accustomed with ease. I've gotten accustomed that this is, if, if, if life is easy, then marriage ought to be easy too. Actually, longitudinal studies demonstrate that two-thirds of those unhappy marriages out of, out of there will become happy within five years if people stay married and do not get divorced. A ton of studies have been done that have demonstrated that if an unhappy marriage, right, most people will say, well, I gave it a year, I gave it two, I gave it three. They say statistics show that if you stay in it for five years, most of the time those unhappy marriages, now granted, there are circumstances that make relationships severable, right? Adultery, things that make things complicated. But those who are just in irreconcilable differences, you know, I just don't like you anymore. You don't make butterflies you know, twirl in my stomach anymore. I just am not that into you. Studies show that if you give it time, within five years, you'll start to grow. It'll start to work out. It'll start to get better. Your circumstance may not change, but you will change. Your circumstance may not get better, but you will become better. Because in the end, marriage allows you to be fully known. That's the goal of marriage. Is you, listen, you could hide everything in engagement, in the dating phase. You could make yourself be, you guys ever, uh, you know, in the old days, what a lot of like the 1920s and 30s and 40s women would do, is that they'd go to sleep with makeup on. And then in the middle of the night, they'd wake up and they'd wash their faces, clean it all up, get their makeup all off. And then before their husbands would wake up, They'd get up and put makeup on so that they would never show their husbands how they look like. Can you imagine the craziness of that? They never wanted to even show their faces to their husbands. They wanted their husbands to believe that they just woke up looking as beautiful as they do. How nuts is that? Because you don't even want to show what your face really looks like without makeup. But if the sparks were flying in the dating phase and the engagement phase, and then all of a sudden you get married, Everything is known. You are so nice and hospitable to all of her friends and her family. And then when the parents say something, a little bit annoying, what comes out of you? Are you all of a sudden still so hospitable and kind to her and her parents? You all of a sudden, she insults you or he insults you and says something really rude and disrespectful. Are you still the same patient? Let's sit and let's talk through this. Or... Are you the type of person that flips out, gets defensive? You're fully known in marriage. You're fully known. A Duke University professor by the name of Stanley Hauerwas says, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing that it is, it means that we are not the same person after we've entered it. The primary problem is learning to love and care for the stranger whom you find yourself married to. 
The problem is, is as you are getting older and you're growing and you're maturing, you are getting different. You are becoming a different person. The problem then is, is for me to love a person as they are becoming different. Love a person as they are becoming a stranger to me. And that becomes really hard. But there's a disclaimer here. Some people really do marry the wrong person. Some people do things that, you know, they make mistakes in life. So I don't want to make this like, oh, just stick it out. There's certain circumstances that the church gives concessions for situations that are really complicated. But again, for the rest of us who are, you know, ah, they're just not, they're, they, they, he's now become selfish. Oh, he leaves the trash and he doesn't take it out into the garbage can. Or, oh, you know, can you believe it? He burnt my eggs. The primary problem is learning how to love the stranger whom you find yourself married to. See, you're looking for someone who will not require or demand a significant change. You are searching, therefore, for an ideal person, happy, healthy, interesting, content with life. Never before in history has there been a society filled with people so idealistic in what they are seeking in a spouse. I want someone who will accept me just as I am But in your heart of hearts, you know that you are not perfect. That there are plenty of things about you and me that needs to be changed. And that anyone who gets to know you up and close and personal will want to change them. We have this idealistic perspective of marriage that it has to be this like, you know, movie movie sort of scene, movie fairy tale. And I think the reason is, is, you know the expression in Arabic? I'll say it and then I'll translate it. We have gotten used to our moms saying to us, Inta gazelle. Il irdifain ummu gazelle. The monkey in the eyes of his mother is a gazelle. You've gotten so used to your mom telling you you're a gazelle. You've gotten so used to your mom telling you you're awesome and your dad telling you how great you are, but you're a monkey. I'm a monkey. I'm a monkey. All of us are. All of us are broken and fall short. But our parents somehow have told us, you are awesome. And granted, there are some parents that tell their kids they're always monkey, and that's another extreme. But we have this idea that we don't need change. We have this idea that we are, have made it, like we're put together, and anyone who has me is lucky. Not looking into ourselves in the mirror and saying, you know what, I have my shortcomings. And I'm bringing my shortcomings into this relationship. And that's why St. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. If I don't have this gazelle mentality that I am so great, then I esteem the person before me because I know the shortcomings that I have. I look at the person before me and I say, You are awesome, and I see your potential because I know that us together, we will help each other through the brokenness that we have. See, a servant puts somebody else's interests before his own. This is how all believers ought to live. This is how every single one of us ought to experience crisis. We should take his mindset of serving the other. The thing is, couples generally don't have relationship problems. They They have problems they bring to the relationship. The better you that you bring, the fewer problems you bring with you. Do you understand that quote? Couples generally don't have relationship problems. 
They have problems. I have problems, and I bring those problems into the relationship. And when I bring those problems into the relationship, you're a mess, I'm a mess, we're a mess together. Right? You have your wounds, I have your wounds, we wound each other. Hurt people hurt people. The better you that you bring, this is why I'm telling you guys, be careful. Be careful for you young people. Don't just rush into marriage. If you have wounds, your wounds aren't going to be healed by your significant other. You have to do the work necessary to encounter God and let him heal the shortcomings. And go to therapy if you need some. Like, there is stuff that's going on deep in our hearts that we think the person who's before us is going to heal us. But the reality is it doesn't. It just becomes a ticking time bomb. In the first year, the infatuation period, Abuna Paul said, lasts anywhere from a year to two. Right? So I'm infatuated for the first year into it. Many people will say, oh, things were just so great the first year or two. I'm holding on to those moments. That person, Abuna, that was so great in year one and year two, that person wasn't a real person. That person was putting on the face of the best version of himself. And you got the real version of themselves in year three. But did you love them in that moment? So that's why I want to present to you guys fairly quickly Gottman's Four Horsemen of Apocalypse in Relationships. How many, how many of you guys have heard this? This is Gottman's Four Horsemen. Gottman, who's a, a marriage and family therapist, who's a famous psychologist, he basically presented four things that if you bring these four things into relationships, it's going to cause an apocalypse in marriage. It's going to cause an apocalypse in relationships. And therapists, forgive me because I'm not a therapist. I'm going to do my best to explain this. So if, you, if I don't do a great job, pull me aside and correct me later and I'll make a... So these four things, let's get into them. The four things is number one, criticism. If you are the type of person that is very critical, then it's going to be difficult with you in relationships to not be critical. So here's the question that I'm going to ask you. Are you the type of person when you enter into a room, do you notice all that's wrong? Or are you the type of person that sees the good in the situation? Are you by nature more pessimistic? Or are you the more optimistic person? Criticism is basically dealing with problems through harsh blaming or hurtful expressions of judgment or disapproval. So in your friendships, do you criticize your friends? Focus is on the perceived personal flaws rather than the changeable behaviors often met with defensiveness. The kitchen in a mess is a mess, and what's the natural thing? You are such a slob. So the problem is, is the kitchen is a mess, right? That's the problem. The criticism that manifests is you are such a slob. You are the cause and the reason for why the kitchen is a mess. Versus if you have the issue, and by the way, this is really powerful for friendships, because if you tend to be a highly critical person, oh, you're just like, you're so overdoing it. Oh, you just like, your hair looks so ugly like that. You should put it down. Oh, like if you tend to be that person who's constantly critis criticizing, and oftentimes, by the way, if you've been criticized a ton in life, your natural byproduct is you're going to criticize a lot of people. So it's important to kind of just note where that wound comes from. But the gentle startup is dealing with problems in a calm and gentle way. The focus is on the problem, not the person. The problem is the kitchen is a mess. So save the discussion for an appropriate time. Use warm body language and tone and voice and use I statements. I feel frustrated when the dirty dishes are left in the sink. Could you please do the dishes tonight? Not the kitchen is such a mess and you're such a slob and you're the cause of the kitchen always being messy. And every time I clean it, you mess it up again. You see the you, 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 you? What's the natural situation? Is if somebody says you, 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 what do you do? You get defensive and you fight back versus if you say, 
I feel really frustrated when dishes are done and I just clean the kitchen. And it really hurts me when I feel like there's no care for the fact that I just cleaned the kitchen. Could you please help me out and keep the kitchen clean? You see the difference? But the natural byproduct is, is it's not meant to be, const- it's not meant to be critical, it's meant to be constructive, encourage- encouraging. Criticism focuses on the negative and doesn't offer suggestions for solutions and improvement. The second horseman. So if you're a critical person, be careful, check that. Defensiveness. Defensiveness is deflecting responsibility for your own mistakes. So maybe you have the critical person, but then maybe you have the defensive person. Defensiveness basically refuses to accept feedback, makes excuses for behavior, shifts blame to your partner. It isn't my fault I yelled. You were late, not me. It isn't my fault that the kitchen is dirty. I, you know, work so hard all day. And if I come when I leave some stuff on the sink, what's the big deal? Suck it up. You know, just cover for me. Get defensive, not understanding the person behind the feedback. So the defensive per- person, the way to fix that is not to get defensive, not to attack back, not to hurt the person before you, is actually to take a step back and say, you know what? I take responsibility. I own the behavior. I avoid taking feedback personally. It's not about me. It's about the problem. You know, I heard this, this analogy from Buddha Anthony. He said, sometimes when we play, when we are arguing, we play a p- game of ping pong. And in the game of ping pong, it's like, no, you did this. No, you did this. No, you did this. No, you did this. And you're going back and forth. And instead... If we acknowledge what the problem is and work on it together, we're able to solve the issue, right? But oftentimes we want to just blame the other and then one person wants to get defensive or both get defensive. So if you're, again, these are recipes that cause the apocalypse of marriage, right? Or relationships in general. So if you're critical or you're defensive and that tends to be always the ways that you fight, be careful. Instead says, hey, I shouldn't have raised my voice hey, I shouldn't have left those dishes in the sink. Hey, I'm so sorry about that. I'll try to be better. I'm sorry. You see how what that does? That diffuses the situation right away. It doesn't point the blame. It accepts responsibility and fixes the issue. The third horseman is contempt. Showing contempt is the most toxic of issues. Its presence in marriage is the greatest predictor of divorce. Greatest predictor of divorce. Contempt speaks from a position of moral superiority, and it includes sarcasm, cynicism, name-calling, eye-rolling, sneering, mockering, hostile humor. It's arrogant. It disregards. It dismisses the other person's concern. The unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of the other is marked by disgust and disdain and is is destructive and deafening. It's this like, I am so much better than you. So you show anger, disgust, and hostility towards the person using put-downs or insults. You attempt to make yourself better than the other. You're sarcastic. You see why this could be problematic? You see why this could be the predictor of divorce? It's because if somebody brings something to the table and and I say, well, did you read your Bible today? Like somebody's coming and saying something to you about the dishes being dirty. And you're like, well, if you read your Bible, maybe you'd be able, if your cup was full, maybe you'd be able to have a little bit of my empty cup overflow, you know? You know, maybe if you uh, actually went to church and church actually changed, you'd be more patient to me. I work. 
I am like putting, killing myself out there. Maybe if you got a job, you would do the same thing. Oh, wait, I forgot. You don't like to work. Oh, I forgot taking care of the kids is work. You see the problem? It's this superior, this arrogance, this, this I am so much better. And how destructive, how hurtful is that in a relationship? Versus foster a healthy relationship by regularly showing respect and appreciation. Show affection. Recognize your partner's strengths. Give compliments. Randomly give compliments. When was the last time, again, in a friendship, we'll take it for the college folks, maybe that are in a relationship, when was the last time you just complimented somebody just because you just really appreciate them? When was the last time you complimented your wife for cooking a meal or for your husband who stood up and cooked a meal as well? Not putting those gender, you know, because sometimes men cook too, just FYI, you know. Not in my household, but <laughs> I'm not going to try to, everyone's going to be like, uh, when was the last time you cooked, mister? I made egg, make eggs for the kids, you know, and I burned them. But the appreciation, the appreciation, the admiration for the person that, hey, I just, I just love you, like I really care about you versus the arrogance. Hey, you're just actually so awesome and not fake. Like actually find the good in your spouses, find the good in your friendships, see the virtue that they have. Finally, the fourth horseman. So what's the first two? Criticism, second one. Defensiveness, third one. Contempt, fourth one, stonewalling. Stonewalling. What's stonewalling? Stonewalling is probably like when you're on your last thread. You emotionally withdraw, you shut down, you go silent. You go silent. Like, I don't, you know they say when a, when a relationship becomes apathetic, it's a relationship that people don't even want to fight for anymore. It's like, I'm at the end of me, like I have nothing left. So I'm just emotionally withdrawn, I'm shut down, and I don't even want to have this conversation. Every time a conversation comes up to try to make it better, we did this before, it's not worth it, it's never going to get better, let's just like, glory be to God for every man. Often a response to feeling overwhelmed. Used to avoid difficult discussions or problems. Underlying problems go unresolved. The stonewalling person is often the person that when they get stressed out and tense about the situation, they just need to exit as fast as they can. But what I tell people in relationships, if you're the person that calls time out, if you're the person that needs the space, it's your responsibility to call time in. So if I am in the middle of a relationship and I'm getting overwhelmed and I'm feeling this stonewalling come up, I'm feeling this like lack of wanting to have a conversation, I'm like sort of getting super like just overwhelmed, Time out. Let's call time out. Hey, let's just like take a break. I call time out. And the responsibility of the person who calls time out is responsible to call time in. And here's the thing. We love that verse. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Works for some people. Works in my household. We never go to sleep without, you know. But some people, they actually naturally need a little bit of space from each other. They just need a little bit of time to cool down. And some people, it takes 20 minutes. Some people, it takes 30 minutes. Some people, it takes an hour. Some people, it takes a night. Figure out what your method of dealing with conflict is, but don't resort to stonewalling. If you call time out, call time in. They'll tell you in the psych world, use relaxation techniques to calm down. You know, in our church, we tell people to pray the Jesus prayer. So if you're in the middle of a situation and you're feeling really overwhelmed and you're ready to explode on the person, take three seconds to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. 
Agree to pause the conversation briefly. Use deep breathing. Use progressive muscle relaxation. You know, the body scanning and all this stuff. This is for the therapist. I'm not going to go too deep into it. But focus on just finding your heartbeat, finding the peace that's within you. I know this is super hard. It's very, very theoretical and ideal. And in the real situation, when the boiling point starts to kick in, you just want to go right for the jugular. So why should we fight for our marriage? Why should we fight for our marriage? There's a lot that I want to say. And I've been going for 35 minutes, so I want to just be mindful of everybody's time. But there's a lot that you can say of the why you should fight for your marriage. First of all, it'll produce a better you. You'll learn how to deal with conflict. You'll learn how to love somebody despite their shortcomings. Second of all, I think it really has an impact on the little ones. On the little ones around you. We are a byproduct of our parents, whether we like it or not. The wounds that I have from my parents, which my parents were fantastic, I love them very much, you know, but every human is short, has shortcomings. And we ought to be the best version of ourselves in Christ for the sake of the others around us, not just for our little ones, but for our community as well. So we ought to fight for our marriages. We ought to actually be healthy. We ought to actually grow from the relationships that God has put in our place so we can be healing some of those generational traumas. There's a lot of generational traumas from immigrant parents that are first generation in this country trying to just make ends meet, trying to just put food on the table, trying to just figure things out in a new country, in a new world. Give them some grace. Your parents weren't perfect. They weren't perfect, but they did the best that they possibly could within the struggles that they had. Can you imagine going to a country not speaking the language at all whatsoever and then trying to provide for a family and make ends meet? Can you provide, can you figure out how much difficult, how difficult that must have been for them to be foreigners, to leave their families, to leave everything behind? But they did it for the sake of each and every one of us. That comes with trauma, personal trauma for them and then some for the for, for thereafter. So we should take responsibility for ourselves. We shouldn't play the blame game. We should do the work necessary to figure out where our shortcomings lie before we enter into relationships and put that trauma that I had onto the other person, expect that person to be my therapist. Your partner is not your therapist. Your partner is not your, your, your healer. Jesus is a healer. He's your redeemer. He's your savior. He's the one who's able to bind anything that is wounded, to heal anything that's scarred. And I think oftentimes we want the healing without doing the work. Because the responsibility is high. I'm going to start with the men. You know, we often in the marriage ceremony, we love this part for the men. Yeah, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And woman, yeah, submit to me. Like, yeah, you know, everybody wants to be like the tough guy in this part. But let me just reread this for you so you actually understand what's actually happening. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Easy? Easy? I would say almost impossible. I would say 
incredibly difficult. If I'm to follow this command, if I'm to even try and strive to be this person that Christ is calling me to be. Let me even show you a quote from St. John Chrysostom. Yes, even if it's necessary, becomes necessary for you to give your life for her, yes, and to be cut into ten pieces 10,000 times, yes, and to endure and undergo any suffering, whatever, do not refuse it. Even if you're to be cut 10,000 times for your wife, do it. He's saying if you should go to martyrdom, if you're, going, if like you're actually in a situation, all the guys are like, well, what do you mean by this? Like, cut, cut into pieces? Like, what are you talking about? This ain't like the, you know, the Colosseum ties. No, no. If you are, as a man, if you want to enter into a relationship with a godly perspective, if you want to be, if you're, if you're asking the church to bless your marriage, then you're taking, making this covenant to God. You're making this covenant to God that you are going to love this woman as he loves you. And you are willing to die for this woman, to be cut into 10,000 pieces if you have to. This ain't a joke, men. This ain't about like, oh, I'm getting into marriage for gratification for myself. This is about me being like Jesus in marriage. Suffer anything for her sake, but never disgrace her. For Christ never did this with the church. Suffer anything for her sake, but never disgrace her. You see, you see the way the fathers speak to men? Where are the men? Where are the men of this generation? Where are the men who dignify their wives, who lift up their wives, who pray for their families, who take their kids and present their kids before the church and they're, they're the model of Jesus to those households? Where are the men? Where are the men? Ladies, I'm not putting you off the hook yet. Hold on. No, you guys are all. Where are the men? Men have become children. Forgive me. Men have become children. A child comes and says, I want this and I want this and I want this and I want this. Give me a, a candy. Give me this. Give me that. Men have become takers instead of givers. The command that you make to God, the promise, the covenant that you make to God on the day of your marriage is what? That it will I will love that woman as Christ loved the church. Now, women... If your husband loves you with that kind of love, if your husband loves you like Jesus, what's a natural byproduct? I'll do whatever for you. I'll give my life to you too. I will submit to you. I'll give everything because we submit to one another. Don't forget that part in Ephesians chapter 5 where it says submit to one another. I will submit to you. I'll give everything to you. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. I want to read this quote. I love this quote from St. John Chrysostom. This is baller. So please follow this. For nothing, nothing is more powerful than a pious and sensible woman to bring her husband into proper order and to mold his soul as she wills. For he will not listen to friends or teachers or rulers as much as he will his partner advising and counseling him, since the advice carries some pleasure with it, because she who gives the counsel is what? Greatly loved. I could tell many hard and disobedient men who have been softened in this way. If he loves you as Christ loves the church, the natural byproduct is I give. The natural byproduct is I serve as well. We are serve if he's serving and willing to die for me, 
I will like submit to that person who's willing to die to me. And submission is not ownership, by the way. Submission is not inferiority. Submission is not me putting myself as a doormat in the place to be kicked. Submission is that you love me in such a way that the natural byproduct is I love you with all that is within me. I give 100% and you give 100%. But look what happens is even if your husband is a doofus, pardon the words, but even if he's a doofus, if you're pious and sensible and you actually are a praying woman, you think he's going to listen to any other person? He's going to listen to you. But if you're crazy and you go, every time anything goes up and you go nuts, it's not going to end up being a healthy relationship. It's not going to end up producing what you're hoping to get. If he's crazy or you're crazy, anytime there's craziness that comes into the situation, it's just going to be two crazy people fighting. But no, if you are pious and sensible and you use some of those techniques from the four horsemen, and the man, if you use some of those techniques from the four horsemen, you will see the beauty that God is able to do in relationships. I'll wrap up with these last two quotes. Pray together at home and go to church. Very practical advice from St. John. When you come back home, let each ask each other the meaning of the readings and the prayers. What's he saying here? He's saying, if we're supposed to embody Christ and the church relationships, then we ought to listen to what the church is teaching us. We ought to pray together at home and go to church. If church is a, non if church is a non-negotiable for you, it's going to be a non-negotiable for your kids. If church becomes something that is just like, eh, it's when I go when I feel like it, then you're not going to know how to build your house on a rock. You're not going to know how to actually grow that relationship and model it after what Christ intends it to be. Look what St. Gregory says. In our living together, we are one another's hands, ears, and feet. Marriage redoubles our strengths, rejoices our friends, causes grief to our enemies. A common concern makes trials bearable. Common joys are all the happier. An accord makes riches more pleasant. It is even more delightful than riches for those without wealth. Look how the fathers present marriage. They, mar they present marriage as this beautiful, glorious thing. My challenge to every single one of us today is, are you coming into marriage willing to be fully known? Acknowledging where our shortcomings lie? Presenting ourselves before the other? Not fake? You know the word Hippocrates is one who puts on a mask? Not one who puts on a mask? Not one who wakes up in the middle of the night putting makeup on to make themselves? Not, are we presenting our whole self? If you're hiding something today in a relationship before marriage, nothing done in won't be exposed. It's going to be exposed. It's going to come out some way, somehow. And if you're in a relationship and you're hiding a part of yourself and there's something that you're struggling with, the goal of marriage is to be healed. The goal of marriage is to be two people presenting themselves to Christ and Christ being the physician that heals the both of them. But if Christ is not in the center of the relationship, good luck. I'm just being honest. Good luck. It may work, but the odds are against you. The odds are against you. So let's build our houses upon a rock. Let's build our houses upon a relationship with Christ. Let me invest in myself, in my relationship with God pre-marriage. And if I'm in marriage, if I'm not doing the work spiritually to be able to grow, start today. It's never too late. It's never too late. There's always hope. He's the hope for the hopeless. He's the help for the helpless. He's the rest for the weary. He's the one who binds the brokenhearted. That's his mode of operation. 
We've seen many, many marriages start off on the wrong page and become glorious because they, enter, they brought the healer into the brokenness of the situation. So let's do the work. Let's do the work for each other. Let's do the work for the next generations. Let's do the work so that all of us can stand before God one day and say, the covenant and the vow that I made before you when I was getting married, I kept. I kept my end of the bargain. Fair? Glory be to God. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.